Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. I hope you still have your Bibles open to Psalm 1. Be looking at this text today. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be beginning this series of messages called The Pursuit of Wisdom. We're going to be looking in the Psalms and the Proverbs specifically on what God has taught us and is teaching us about this thing called wisdom and how we grow in it and how we understand it. When we read the Psalms, they're songs in poetry. They're put together in a way that God is teaching us something in a way that responds to all of our hearts. Like the beautiful music we've just participated in moves us and brings us to new thoughts and new emotions and new reactions. And this is what the Psalms do. But they're primarily instructive about who God is and who we are. They're quite revealing, to be honest. In the research for this series, I began to to do a little bit of a deep dive into the Psalms, enjoying them devotionally, and I was doing some commentary work, and I discovered something that I had heard before, but it had been dismissed by the one who shared it with me, and then I came to this understanding about what it actually might be. The, The Psaltery, that's the collection of all the Psalms, the 150 that we find in our Old Testament text. They're, they're broken into five books by the experts, by the scholars. Those five books are representative of the Pentateuch. Now, the Pentateuch is the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so when we're looking at these books, they actually took the Psalms and they broke them into these five books. There's a Genesis collection, an Exodus collection, and so on and so forth. All of these Psalms, then, that are put into those books actually correlate fairly well to the theme We're going to be focusing in this pursuit of wisdom on the first book, the Genesis collection. And we'll also be bringing in some studies in Proverbs about wisdom and how we are to find wisdom and grow in it as the Word of God in the wisdom literature brings us. Now, that's a bunch of preamble, but I want you to understand where we're going. And I hope you're not looking at it saying, well, I really don't want to study poetry. No, we're not studying poetry. When you study the Psalms, you're studying God. You're studying the characteristics of God. You're studying the goodness of God. You're studying who God truly is. These are life-giving, life-altering words. Now, they're different than the stories of Jesus' life here on earth. They're different than the letters written to early Christians. They're different than the Old Testament prophecies, but they're just another way in which God, through the Holy Spirit, has designed it in such a way that you and I can know him more and actually see ourselves revealed in knowing God. It really comes all down to this whole understanding of the pursuit of wisdom helps us have a with God life. And we're going to be looking at the very first psalm today as we begin this series. Now, I've had a lot of experiences in my life where I either liked something a whole lot and found out later I shouldn't have, or I didn't like something at all, I thought, and then to find out later that I really did like it. Now, it might be something as inconsequential as music, and I was really tempted to list a couple of groups from the 70s that I didn't like, but I'm thinking, the minute I do, everyone's going to judge me, so I'm going to leave that alone. But food, now you all know me, food matters. And there were some foods when I was growing up that I didn't like. It took me forever to realize I liked guacamole. I didn't think I liked guacamole. I don't know if the first taste of guacamole I had was made of peas, but I hated it. And it went years without enjoying it. And then I was in Japan, and Caitlin Greer made guacamole in front of me and had pineapple and all this amazing stuff in it, and I tasted it, and I've been hooked ever since. It might be something like food, or it might be something about a, a moment in history that you thought you understood. And aren't we living in a day and an age where our history is being redefined before our eyes, and things we thought were innocent are proving not to be innocent? 
You see, as we grow, as we learn, I think the Bible calls it wisdom. We learn how to take the knowledge we have and the experiences that we have, and it comes together under God's leading. And if we're not careful, if we allow God to alter us, we might become wise. The pursuit of wisdom is what we're going to be about. And this summer, we're going to be looking at how do we grow in that which God can give us. And we're going to be looking at the first psalm of the first book. Now, I want you to understand something. This first psalm is essentially the exposition of every other psalm. Let me say that again. Psalm 1 is being extrapolated on in every other psalm that follows it, all the way to the 150th. It all can be found in the core of pursuing the wisdom that God has designed for us. It also warns us of what awaits us if we don't pursue the wisdom that God is offering us to alter us, to change us, to help us like things we've not liked and to stop liking things we never should have liked. God is with us in this journey. It's the with God way. So what I want you to understand is Psalm 1 introduces us to the biblical teaching of options. Now, that's not a doctrine. You won't find a theology book on it, but I want you to understand these options are, are prevalent throughout Scripture. It reminds you of that great Robert Frost, his most famous piece of work where he calls the road not taken. His opening couplet says this, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That, that's a beautiful comparison, a choice on a pathway, if you will, of a life that you can live. Taking a left here or a right here can alter your existence, your future, your relationships, and all of it. I want you to understand that Jesus, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, also used this theory of options and contrasts. He talked about two gates, which are found on the end of two distinct roads. He talked about two trees and their distinct fruit that each produces different than the other. He talked about two houses built on two different foundations. Psalm 1 is the inspiration. Psalm 1 is, is the first voice we hear talking about that the choices in life that we make shape us. And how we're shaped matters. It's the wisdom song. And it's talking about how the wise choose to live. So the question posed in our psalm that we read at the beginning of our time of worship is, which are we? Which path will we choose to take? Let's reread verses 1 and 2 about the two ways described. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. It's interesting that the first psalm, the first song that they put together when they created the psaltery, if you, if you would, it's the hymn book of, of the Jewish believers, the followers, the nation of Israel, it's the Jewish hymn book. And the first word of the first song is blessed. Now, some English translations will say happy, but that's such a cheap translation because what we've turned happy in our language is not what they're talking about. It actually means the person who is blessed is the person who is fulfilled, the person who is made complete, the person who finds that thing that matters. So the first song that they would have sung from the psaltery would have been fulfilled is the person who does this or is this, and unfulfilled is the person who does this or becomes this. Remember, the, the whole psalm is asking us the question, 
How are we shaped? And this has been given to us to show us that God is good and he brings us lasting good. God is not a tyrant. God is a loving father. And he's guiding us into wisdom. He's giving us good counsel and good advice. And those that heed that advice are blessed, fulfilled. And those who don't will choose to punish themselves with a lack of fulfillment and a lack of blessing. So why would the psalmist start this way? I don't want to dissect every moment or every motive, but it's important. If this is the psalm that leads all other songs, then what is the writer of this psalm doing inspired by the Holy Spirit? At first glance, it's interesting that it says that the blessed man, and then it gives a description of what they don't do. And it's actually an excellent device to teach by. Notice that the, the author of this psalm doesn't say, don't be wicked, don't sin, and don't scoff. It would have been simple to do that. It would have been really quick, really pointed. It would have been wise nonetheless, but it is what it is. The contrast the author is making, though, and follow with me if you will. The contrast that the author of the first song is actually making is not comparing wickedness versus righteousness. He's actually comparing what is shaping us, what is influencing us, what is guiding us, what is drawing us toward itself. You see, being shaped in our thinking and feeling if it's being shaped by those that are wicked and those that pursue sin and those that scoff after what is righteous, rather than being shaped by the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, we're being told, don't be influenced by the wicked. Don't be influenced by those who pursue sin. Don't be influenced by those that scoff at what is good and just and right. But why would we be? Because the psalmist is telling us that what we focus our mind on is what shapes us. The reason that sin becomes tolerable and then becomes attractive and then becomes addictive is not because we chose to be wicked or sinful. It's that we meditated on the offering of that that was shaping us away from God and not toward wise lives. So the psalmist doesn't make this about righteousness versus unrighteousness. They're actually telling us that we are being shaped by what we focus our mind on and what we find our delight in. And you get to choose what you delight in. You see, the point is that the only hope that you and I have against the pleasures of the world is when we find the pleasures of the word. I want to say that again. If you remember nothing I say today, I want you to remember this. The way to overcome the pleasure of the world is to find yourself the pleasure of the word, the instruction. The word Torah that's used here, law, is Torah. What does it mean? It means instruction. It doesn't mean rules and regulations. It means instruction on wise living. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So because of this, we're being challenged to focus our minds and our hearts. I think you would agree with me, wouldn't you, that we're living in a day and an age where wisdom is lacking and emotion is winning? So how do we, win? How do we live wisely in a world that rewards emotion and anger and feelings, and none of those are wrong. God gave every one of them to us. But are they being wisely used, and are they leading us with wisdom? We might expect that because the wicked person is described in terms of his association, that the wise person would then be also attuned to what they associate with. But it actually isn't who they associate with, but what they focus their mind on. Notice that the wise person not only doesn't walk or sit or stand in these particular ways, but the reason they don't isn't because they're better, it's because they've meditated on the instructions of God that bring life. Or as Jesus would tell us, the bread of life. 
And I've come to bring you the bread of life that you may eat and be filled. Huh, interesting. Blessed, fulfilled. Wisdom fills us in a way that delights us like nothing else will. And our delight is found in the instructions of God on how to live a with God life. We've been talking about this for three months, ever since the pandemic hit. How do we live with God well? Psalm 1 is a good way to begin. It's the idea. C.S. Lewis says that the meaning of delight in the Lord means to think about God with pleasure. And here's the good news. When you really know who God is and you think about who God is, it's not a burden. It's not a punishment. It's not homework. When When you know who God is by understanding who Jesus Christ was, your heart will delight, not in a temporary way, but in, a, in an eternal way. You'll begin to find pleasure in knowing that God loves you and cares for you, not in a future day, but in this day, regardless of how you've lived your life, whether you're someone who's just listening in and just participating for the first time in worship, the reason we all will sing and praise God is not because we're good enough now, not that we've accomplished some accomplishment, But the actuality is that we're fully aware that we don't deserve any of this, and yet God still offers it to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And from that, we delight. And when we begin to delight, our appetites change. Our behavior changes. Not because it has to, because it can't stop itself. When we understand the fulfillment that there is in knowing God as our our Father, and Jesus as our brother and Lord at the same time, it brings a joy and a peace and a fulfillment to us that you can't get anywhere else. See, when we delight in the Lord, we're actually learning more about God. And that becomes the most important thing. You see, there's a, the temporary fulfillment of sin. And I'm not going to lie to you. Sin can give you a temporary satisfaction. It may last a day or two days or two or three weeks, but eventually, we all know this, when we don't live wisely, it comes back to haunt us. We do harvest what we plant. We reap what we've sown. And the wisdom of God says, no, I want you to delight in me. And when you delight in me, then the words of the scoffers and the sinners and those that are standing against wisdom, you'll look at them with a new mind because the regenerate, that's a fancy theological term. When God does his work in us and saves us from ourselves and from sin to new life in Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden, our souls become awakened to a hunger we have forgotten or ignored. That's what it means to delight in God. On his instruction, a wise person meditates day and night. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff which the wind blows away. See, why doesn't verse 3 say something like, when you meditate on God's instruction and delight in what you see, then you won't be wicked, you won't be sinful, and you won't scoff? Because what the psalmist is showing us is something very, it's subtle, but it's so important. It's, It's not telling us that meditating on the law of God is that simple secret we need to begin to do good things. It's not like if you get God's arm twisted just properly, then all of a sudden he'll make you a better person. No, actually, when you begin to delight in the Lord, he changes your appetites, and you begin to produce a fruit that's not by your own doing, it's by the work of the Spirit. In the New Testament, we call that the fruit of the Spirit. That when we give our heart and soul to God and find our delight in Jesus Christ, and he completes us, 
we will begin to produce a fruit of godliness that we cannot produce in our best efforts and our best mindsets. We're not, we will become a tree that produces fruit, not a laborer that picks fruit. And it, we're free to do this. He gives this contrast again. We, we've been talking about these paths as a church. How do we grow in discipleship? Well, we choose a pathway that follows the work of Jesus. In the Psalms, in Psalm 1, the author tells us there's a tree and it's fruitful. It describes a man or woman who delights in the Lord, who thinks constantly about the goodness of God, who focuses their attention to the instruction of the Lord, who it is not a punishment and it's not overbearing homework. It's actually an invitation into a relationship with him, an honoring, loving, serving relationship with our Father who has honored, loved, and served us beyond our worth. And like a tree planted, no matter what the, the above ground looks like, no matter what the conditions are, when we delight in the Lord, this scripture tells us that our roots will, go, will become rooted deeper into the supply of refreshment that only God can bring. No matter what's happening on the surface, our roots go deep. We are rooted in Christ, grounded in his goodness, and we find life. That is a God-delighting person who can stand through any persecution, any trouble, any trial, because they know who God is, they delight in him, and God sustains them when they can't sustain themselves. The other side of that, to live unwisely and not listen to the instruction of the Lord or seek him as our delight, you become like the chaff. Now, this is well explained, but threshing floors were often held on on high points in cities where the winds would come blowing across. And what they would do is they would bring in the harvest and they would run it with animals. They would run these hard, round stones over the wheat or whatever and they would thrash it down so that it was all broken to pieces. And then they would grab everything that was left and they would just lift it up into a big gale, a big gust of wind. And that which is worthless and had no weight would blow away and the good stuff would land and they would harvest the good stuff. And the psalmist uses that imagery which would have made 100% sense to his audience, he says, that is, now think about it, that threshing of the produce will reveal what is worthwhile and what is not. And the psalmist says that those that don't live wisely as by God's instruction, they're going to get blown away. The threshing floor is also a biblical usage for judgment. And what's beautiful about this is it was King David who bought a threshing on, on a mountain cliff. He went into a, a place where threshing took place all the time, and he bought that piece of property from a man, and that became the, the place on which the temple of God was established. Think about the beautiful imagery, that the temple is the place where our lives are tested, and that which is worthless is blown away, and that which is valuable is kept as a blessing. It's beautiful imagery the psalmist puts here. When we sow a lack of wisdom, we will reap judgment. When we sow a life of wisdom, we will reach value, fulfillment, purpose. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, what did, what did Satan, the serpent, promise Eve? She said that, he said, if you will do what you want to do, if you will do what I'm challenging you to do, you will become like God and you will see. And what did she receive for her lack of wisdom? She was nothing like God. She became like Satan. And she became blind. She could no longer see all that God had, all that God was because she was separated by her sin. And every promise of the unwise ends up in judgment and destruction. And every effort of wisdom produces a fruit in our lives that only God can produce 
in us. Well, that brings us toward the end. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Verse 6 is a fitting end to the psalm. It's a proper thematic statement for the Psalter. Now, I know I've said it twice. I'm going to say it a third time, hoping I can embed this in you. Remember that the scholars will tell you that most every psalm comes off of the first one. It's a refrain to this key moment of wisdom, that God is driving us, instructing us, leading us, guiding us, and walking with us. I love it says the Lord walks, or excuse me, watches over the way of the righteous. He's with us in this. He's guiding us. He's instructing us. He's mentoring us. Why? So that he can lead us to life. And those that refuse his wisdom end up destroyed. I don't relish that. I'm not a preacher who thinks for a second that God is such an ogre that if you don't live every day making him happy, he could just flick you off his globe. I don't believe that at all because I know a God who is so kind and so patient and so willing to accept us as we are that he takes us broken and beaten and worthless and he turns us into valuable sons and daughters that he is restored to life. That's the God who looks at your life to walk with you. But when we tell God to leave us alone, the worst thing that can happen is to live a life away from God alone. So there are choices we must make. What is shaping our lives? Will it be the relationships we have with those who don't value God, who don't know God, and don't respect the wisdom of God? Are we being shaped by others who tell us that the word of God, without them even knowing it, doesn't work? It doesn't fit? It doesn't matter today? In a world fighting with great passion over who matters and who doesn't, doesn't the word of God address that? Don't we have a message to tell people today? My value is in the fact that the image of God resides in me and resides in you. We love and we respect and we serve. Who is shaping the way we see one another? The other questions we have to ask ourselves is, will we dive into the nature of God displayed to us in Jesus? See, it's more than just reading the Bible. If that's what you heard me say today, that if you just have a good Bible study time, you'll be wise. Oh, absolutely not. I've had Bible studies my, almost my entire adult life. I've had great moments of lacking wisdom because there's a difference between reading what it says and living it out, trusting it, because I know who told me it. It was God. It was the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus himself who spoke to my soul and called me to life. You see, one path that you'll choose is engaged with God and will be led by God. The other path that you can choose blindly leads itself toward destruction. But also remember this. The people who follow God have no greater value than the people who don't. It's how we value God, how we wisely pursue God. Listen to Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. That's not a happy verse. I like verse 6 in Psalm 1 a whole lot more. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's he's engaged. He's involved. He's not irritated. He's not distant. He's with us. Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. How does this psalm lead us to the message of Jesus? 
How does it take us to the gospel? Because I don't want to study a piece of poetry that's beautifully written, well done, makes a lot of sense, and has no connection to what the Father's calling us to. So is this just a pretty song, or does it actually connect us to the gospel? It certainly does. Because the psalmist asks in the 130th Psalm, God, how can you see me for what I am and love me nonetheless? Are you just acting like I did in sin? And we know the answer. Jesus was the answer that restores the value of every single person. How can a holy and righteous God act like Mark Christian has not sinned? Because I have, repeatedly, willfully, without a sense or piece of wisdom, I have rebelled against my Father. How can he not require that my perfect righteousness, which I threw away for sin, how can he not require that I face eternal judgment for rejecting everything he was and everything he gave me? The answer is that God does mark our iniquity. God does know you're a sinner. He's not acting like you're not. But God did something that righteousness requires, that there would be bloodshed for our sin. But what we never would have imagined was that what God, when it did was he came down as Jesus and walked among us, God here on earth. And he went to the cross for me. And he went to the cross for you. And if you're a believer, you know he went to the cross for you. And if you're not believing in Jesus, it's because you don't understand. He went to the cross for you too. How can God look at our sin and act like it's not there? Because he doesn't look at our sin and act like it's not there. He took care of our sin. Jesus Christ paid the price. The wise received that. The foolish face judgment for rejecting it, for not receiving it, for not loving it, for not honoring it. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Paul is answering the questions I've just posed to you. How does a just God deal with my lack of being just or the truth of my being just a sinner? How does God deal with that? Romans 10, 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That Jesus went to the cross for the simple purpose of guiding us back on the path of wisdom, to be instructed by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, through the guidance of God, toward the beauty of God, the character of God, to delight in God, to not look at Christianity as some payment for our sin, but to actually realize that we get to join in in a celebration of worship and love and service and gratitude to a God who's been good to us. As I often like to do to connect the pieces, I want to talk to you about your head, your hands, and your heart. For your head, I want you to think about this. Meditate on the wisdom of the word. Begin to read. Start with Psalm 1 and spend this week reading it every morning, reminding yourself of its promise that God is good and guides us. For your hands, something to do. Do the things of wisdom, not the things of the sinner, the scoffer, and the foolish. Repent of those things that the Word of God says will break you and begin to live out the things He's asked you to do. For your heart, delight in the Lord. Now, you won't delight in the Lord by simply trying really hard, like holding your breath. Ask God, through His Holy Spirit, to teach you in His Word what you can hold on to in the depth of your heart. Enter into a loving relationship with God. How do you do that? You accept the blood of Jesus Christ. 
you confess Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, you repent of your sins, you confess that you are a sinner who needs saved, and you allow the work of Jesus Christ by faith to cleanse you, and you live delighting in God's love for you through Jesus. Maybe you just need to repent. You need to pray with someone this morning. You need to call someone and say, hey, I just need to share this with you to encourage me as I continue. Delight in the Lord. One of the ways that we do that each and every time we gather is what we call the table of Jesus or the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion. It's something we do together. And I really miss being with so many people, sharing, seeing others drink and eat at the same time. But let's remember, this is a beautiful moment for us to delight in the work of Jesus on the cross. Because he told us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, together with my church, proclaim my death until I come again. We get to delight in the goodness. Today, we drink. Whatever you've chosen as this emblem, we drink together today, remembering his goodness. We eat the bread, remembering his fulfillment. We celebrate. We relish this. And as we take together, we will then sing together a song that speaks to the hope and delight we have in Jesus. But let's thank him for what he offers us. What a delight it is to know him as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for your gift of life. We thank you for your gift of hope. Jesus, on behalf of all of us, I thank you for being willing to die on the cross for a group of ungrateful people who came into your world, use up its resources, and act like it's not anything but ours. And you saw our rebellion, and you saw our anger, and you saw our destruction. And instead of judging us all, which we deserved, you came to earth, you walked among us, you taught us love and grace and peace, and then you gave it to us. Through your death, burial, and resurrection, we now live. So today we will eat and drink, delighting in you, asking that you will teach us to delight even more in everything we say, everything we do, and everything we are. We sing to you, Father. We eat and drink to you, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, we listen to you that you'll guide us. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.